and welcome to Bible study. Do we have anyone with us who is participating for the very first time? Do we have any first timers tonight? Wow, praise God. Whoa, yay! Awesome. Welcome. Um, we're so glad to have you. We greet you on behalf of our pastor, the Reverend Dr. Howard John Wesley. And um, we love delving into scripture here at Alfred Street. And um, Pastor Wesley says all the time that his job is not to tell us what to think, but to get us to think. So um, we invite you to come with us and delve into this text and wrestle together. We want to continue the theme that we've had in um, the sermon series for the month of September, which is Better Together. And tonight, um, I thought we would try Adam and Eve. Um, I, why not? <laughs> we um, looked at Hannah and um, Penina. We looked at Ruth and Naomi. And um, I thought we might find some interesting, perhaps foundational things in the story of Adam and Eve. One of the things that we've talked about in the sermon series and in Bible study is the acknowledgement that we were made to live in community. We were made to live in community. But that doesn't mean it's always easy. There are blessings that come from being in community, and there are very, very real challenges that come from living in community. So if you think about it, um, two weeks back we looked at Hannah and Penina. These were two co-wives um, who were living in community, not by choice, um, who had to deal with the expectations of culture on where their value was placed. And then um, after that we looked at Ruth and Naomi. Um, two other women who found themselves in community um, because of marriage. And in that relationship, we saw how God used a Moabitess, a Moabite, a foreigner, a despised foreigner, to um, bless Naomi's life. And I think we were encouraged to think about ways in which we can look for God's goodness in unexpected people. So tonight, as we think about Adam and Eve, I want us to think about the origins of community. All right? And so for that reason, we're going to look at the creation stories in the book of Genesis. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis are called the primordial or primeval history. And if you've ever read the Bible from, you know, wanted to start from the very beginning and work your way through, what you might notice is that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not like anything else in the book of Genesis. They are unique in their content and they're unique in their style. All right? Those words primordial or primeval from the very beginning. So some people call the first 11 chapters of Genesis the beginning of the beginning, all right? Before you get to Abraham, we have the stories of creation, Cain and Abel, the flood, and all of these genealogies are in those first 11 chapters. One of the reasons that the first 11 chapters are peculiar is because it is not simply a recording of events. 
we need to expand our understanding of what history is and understand that there are different kinds of history. There are even different kinds of history within the Bible. So one of the things I want to suggest to you is that the primeval history, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, is not a thorough account. What I mean by that is it doesn't tell us everything. Where does Cain's wife come from? I have no idea. All we know is he went away and he got married. Well, how did that happen? All right, we don't get everything. We get some things and not everything. So it is an account, but it is not an unabridged account. All right, it gives us some things. And navigating the primeval history can be easier if we think about the purpose of the primeval history. All right, and if it helps you, think about it this way. Every history has a purpose, all right? So the primeval history is describing how things came to be for the purpose of explaining how things are. Stay with me. So it's not just simply trying to explain what happened, but it's talking about what happened so that you understand why we do what we do today which means it doesn't have to tell you everything. It has to tell you the things you need to know to support why we do what we do today and who we are. Any questions about what I just said? I'm, I'm looking with skepticism. Um, so if you, here's an example. Genesis 1 talks about God creating the earth in how many days? Aha, it's six. God creates the earth in six days, and what happens on the seventh day? He rests. And so part of what we get in that story is not simply an account of what happened, but a justification for the Sabbath. All right? So it says God rested on the seventh day. God blessed it. God hallowed it. And when you get to Exodus, Exodus is going to say, keep the Sabbath. Why? Because remember that story back in Genesis? All right? So it's not just there to tell you everything, but it's there to tell you why. Why it ha and how it has an impact on how we live our lives today. The creation accounts were not recorded in real time. When God put the stars in the sky, there was no one there writing it down. Humans weren't created yet, right? And so part of what we want to remember is that these stories were held by communities, but not actually written down until probably the 6th century BCE. So even though Israel knew these stories and told these stories and rehearsed these stories and everyone knew them, the impetus for writing them down came when the people were in exile and they were worried about holding on to their stories. Once people started to spread out, they wanted to make sure that we had stories. So that's when everything gets written down. The point I want to make here is the context or the place from which we tell the story also shapes the story. And I'll show you an example of that when we look at it. Okay. So the first 11 chapters and the creation stories tell us as human beings about our place in God's created order. 
If you were here for Lectio Divina, one of the things that we heard in the first creation story is that what God made was good, right? That we were made with intention and purpose and we were good and God blessed us. We are told in the creation stories about our relationship with the animals and about our relationship with each other. And they are told in such a way that they are literary artwork. So I love, I, there's a book um, called Poetry with a Purpose, and I love the title of that book because I do believe it describes some of what we encounter in Scripture. That Scripture can be beautiful and poetic and powerful, and it's doing all of that for a reason. When we understand the purpose, then that helps us to read. How are we doing? Good so far? All right. So now let's look at Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2. We're going to focus primarily tonight on Genesis 2 because that's when Adam and Eve show up. But we want to start by doing an overview of Genesis 1 because as I say over and over and over again, the Bible is in dialogue. So Genesis 1 is forming a conversation with Genesis 2. So... In Genesis, we have two creation stories. The first creation story starts in chapter 1, verse 1, and goes through chapter 2, verse 4a, actually. And then the second story begins in chapter 2, 4b, and goes all the way through the end of chapter 3. Two stories with two different authors. So that the author of the first creation story probably is later than the author of the second creation story. All right? Um, both stories work together. There is one God, um, one creation, but they are different in their formation because they are giving us different messages. So I just want to pause there for a minute to make sure everyone's clear. So the reason, or one of the reasons we have two creation stories is because they have different things to tell us about the nature of creation. Okay? So I'm just going to pause again. Does anybody have questions? Okay. Can you come to the mic, Deacon Easter? Thank you. You mentioned that there are the two creation stories have two different authors. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us who those authors are? <laughs> so they're different. So we call the first five books of the Bible the books of Moses. So there is a tradition that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. That doesn't so what that so sometimes that leads people to believe that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But it is most likely the case that they are called the books of Moses because they're called the books of the law, and Moses is associated with the law. So when we talk about authorship in the Bible, we're never talking about a single person. Why is that? Because all these stories were oral. So if I write the story that my mother told me years ago that her mother told her, who's the author? 
Huh? Right. So, so, so I just want to make sure when we talk about author that we are careful in saying it's the persons who recorded the traditions that existed that are associated with Moses. So you'll never be wrong if you call it a book of Moses. But what I want to suggest, it's a little bit more complicated than that. How are we doing? So it's a, uh, questions? Are we go, we're okay? So that the author associated with Genesis 1 is a source called the priestly source. Which means that the community that kept and recorded that story were, belonged to a priestly community. And they would be concerned with things like keeping the Sabbath and keeping kosher. Okay? And God's holiness. The community that was connected with the second creation story would be called the Yahwist. And this name is because the name that is used for God by this community is the word that we would use as Yahweh. So when Genesis 1 talks about God, they call God Elohim. When the second creation story talks about God, they say Yahweh Elohim. And the way you know this is if you look in your English translation of the Bible, in Genesis 2, 4b and following, it will say, instead of God, it will say, the Lord God. Okay? Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When you get to Genesis 2, it's going to start talking about the Lord God. Okay? All right, now I'm going to pause again. Please come to the mic. Oh. Okay, so while I'm doing this, I want to make sure that I don't have other questions. Because if you have this question, um, somebody else might have it too. Okay, so the Yahwist would say Lord God. And the reason that this is all capital letters is because this word represents God's personal name. Okay? So there's a difference in your English Bible when you see Lord in all caps and when you see Lord with just capital L and lowercase letters. All right? This is God's personal name that is so holy that we don't say it. Okay? How are we doing? Would you come to the mic, please? Please. Please. Great question. Um, what are some of the different objectives that these authors would have in writing their creation? I'm so glad you asked. So if we go to the next slide, we will see that in Genesis 1, as you already know, God created the earth in six days. On the first day God created, God said, let there be, and there was light. God saw the light, God saw that it was good. God called the light day, and the darkness God called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
The second day, God pushes the waters that are all over the earth, pushes them up. If you have a King James Version, it says he made a firmament. The firmament is the sky. God pushes the waters up and forms the sky. And then we have sky above, and then we have waters beneath. That's day number two. Third day, God gathers the seas into one place so that the dry land appears. Days one, two, and three. And it will say, and there was evening and there was morning. The third day. Day number four, God made the sun, the moon, and the stars. But the Bible describes them as the greater light, the lesser light, and the stars. So here's where context informs how writers tell a story. There is a Hebrew word for sun. So why didn't they use it? Why did they say greater light and lesser light? Because they were in Babylon and the Babylonians worshiped the sun. And they didn't want any confusion. They didn't want anybody thinking that they were talking about the Babylonian sun god. So the language they use has, is, is affected by their context. Does that make sense? We doing okay? Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, God makes the birds and the sea creatures. And then day six, God makes all of the things on land, all the creeping things. I love that in the Bible, creeping things. Um, everything on the face of the earth. And God said, let us make humanity according to our image and after our likeness. God made humanity in God's image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. That all happened on the sixth day. Now, how does God create in Genesis 1? Just says it, right? God, all God has to do is speak it and it happens. And if you look, so the, 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 the perspective in Genesis 1 is that God is cosmic, God is powerful and almighty. Genesis 1 also tells us that God created an ordered world. All right, and we see that order in several ways. We see it by the ordering of days. If you look at what's up here, day four corresponds to day one, right? Day one, God makes light. Day four, God makes the sun, moon, and the stars. Day two, God makes the sky above with the seas beneath. On day five, God makes creatures in the sky and creatures in the sea. Day three, the dry land appears. And on day six, God makes all the things that fit in the land. So in Genesis 1, we learn that there is an order to God's creation, that we fit in that order, that we are made in the image and likeness of God, and that we are good, that God has blessed us and charged us with being fruitful and multiplying. So those are some of the messages that we get in Genesis 1. The other, um, um, the way that the story is managed and organized is around time. And the very first word in Genesis 1 is Bereshit. It's a temporal phrase. So Genesis 1, the first creation account, is shaped by time. God is the Lord of time. Okay? We good? Any questions? Can you please come on? We're about there. So, is time a creation? <laughs> um, I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> He's an eternal God, so yeah. we need time. Correct. That's correct. Mm -hmm. okay. okay? So now. Genesis 1, as I told you, the word that's used to describe God is Elohim. 
The word that's used to describe what God does in creation is a Hebrew word called bara. Bara. It means to create, but this word, this verb, only applies to divine creation. Human beings don't bara. Only God creates this way. So again, if you think about Genesis 1, thinking of kind of the cosmic God and the majesty of God, this thing God does, nobody else does. Okay? God creates in six days, and we have this repetition that is structured with evening and morning. And as I said, there's order and purpose to God's creation. Okay? In Genesis 1, we also have God resting on the Sabbath, and we know that what God made was good indeed, very good, and God commands us to be fruitful and to multiply. Okay? Genesis 2 is different in language and sentence structure. So that if you remember Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, full stop, all right? And the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep when a wind from God moved over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay, these sentences, shorter sentences. Genesis 2-4 is really long. I don't know that I, um, I'm sure at some point in my life I could say it without taking a breath, but I can't do it now. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one there to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a human being. That's all one sentence. And it's a long, rambly sentence that uses Lord God. When we look at this creation account, we see the presence of that word, Lord God. And in this story, God does not bara. God does not, we don't see that verb for creation. It says the Lord God forms Yatsar, forms the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. How does God create in Genesis 1? Just says it. How does God create in Genesis 2? Huh? It's po well, it's all poetry, but what is God? How does God do it? He forms the man out of the dust of the ground, which means what? How do you form a man out of the dust of the ground? You have hands, there's contact involved. And if that's not enough, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. There's an intimacy in this account. So it's not just the different language, different words for create. One is create, one is forms, all right? breathes into his nostrils, and then the man became a living being. And in this story, the man comes first by himself. Genesis 1 says, God made, let us make humanity in our, in our image and in our likeness. God made them male and female. He made them. He created them. Here God makes the man. Now, this is an interesting word. What's the man's name? Yes.
Adam is his name, all right? Adam comes from this word, Adama. Adama is the word for earth. So Adam, God formed the man from the dust of the Adama. He made Adam from Adama, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Every time we say this name, we're reminded of where humanity came from. Okay? Every time God calls Adam, we're evoking the origins. All right? God makes the man, and then God puts him in the garden. Where's the garden? Huh? It's the Garden of Eden. All right? And it tells us that, it gives us the location of Eden in Genesis 2. It tells us about the Tigris and the Euphrates. It tells, Euphrates. It tells us about these four rivers that kind of function as the center of the universe. All right? So it tells us God creates the man. God puts the man in the Garden of Eden. And then God says, you can eat from everything except these trees. And that's going to be a problem later on. But for now... He's in there, and he can have almost everything, all right? Almost everything, all right? So he has shelter, and he has food that comes from the trees, and he has rules, unfortunately, all right? Questions about anything I've said to this point? Okay. Then I want to get us to chapter 2, verse 19. God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So I put the word comparable in italics. Um, some people have, what is the King James? Uh, I will make a help meet suitable for him. Is that, does it say suitable in there? Okay, so complimentary, what else do you have? A help meet, a helper appropriate for him. All right, what else? That's a good old English word, right? Hmm? Counterpart, that's a good word. All right, the idea behind the word literally is opposite before in front of. I will make him a helper opposite before in front of him. We're going to come back to that. Another possibility for meaning, I will make him a helper as a counterpart to him. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. I will make him a helper appropriate to him. All right? But the first sense is someone opposite, before, or in front of. Hmm. What does that, somebody's laughing. <laughs> what does that, what might that mean? That's exactly what it is. A mirror. God creates 
someone who is a mirror for Adam. So we're going to talk about a mirror in a second. Okay? So now, out of the ground. So this is the next verse. God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper appropriate for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam. Literally, in the Bible, it says, God brought them to the Adam. So we call him Adam like we're on a first name basis. It's the Adam. So that's why some translations say God brought them to the human. Okay? To see, um, everybody there brought them to the human to see what he would call them. And whatever the human called each living creature, that was its name. So Ha'adam, the human, Adam, gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field, but for the human, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So then what happens? God made him fall asleep. Then what happened? Took a rib. Then what happened? Formed a woman. Then what happened? Presented her to Adam, and what did Adam say? <laughs> okay, I, I like those translations. We're almost ready for an Alfred Street Bible, I think, almost. He says, this one at last, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man she was taken. This one shall be called woman. For out of man she was taken. This one shall be called Isha, because out of Ish she was taken. This is one of the few places where the Hebrew and the English actually work together. So if you think about man, right, and woman, and here you have Isha and Ish, okay? So that we get this play on words where he calls her something that is connected to him, okay? So now, go back to what I said earlier about how the, hist the primeval history is not simply about what happened, but it has a purpose to it. So here are my questions about Genesis chapter two. Why is the story told this way? Think about it. God made Adam and put him in a garden. But God doesn't pronounce, it is not good that the man should be without shelter. Okay? God puts him in the garden and gives him food. But God does not say, it is not good for the man to be without food. All right? So why do we get steps one and steps two before we get the pronouncement, it is not good that the man should be alone? What's the difference between the first two things that God does for the human and the other thing that God does for the human? Why are you laughing? 
Deacon Garrett, why aren't they comparable? Now you got to come to the mic if you got to say more, because I need to hear this. Well, food is not comparable to human or, or to a man or to a living person. And so I think that's the big reason right there. Okay. Or anything, anything else, nothing else is comparable. Nothing else is comparable to human companionship. Is right. that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. So thank you. No, what else? You had something else. Well, you know, if you, if you want to, you know, take it a little deeper in terms of animals, there is some comparability, but it's not the same. It's not that they don't have the same intelligence and okay. abilities to love and so forth. Okay. Thank you. So that helps to explain why the story unfolds the way it does, right? Because God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable for him. And the next thing God does is make animals, which makes absolutely no sense because God is God and God should have known before we started this whole process that no fitting helper was going to be found from all of the animals. So why does the story unfold like that? Okay. Come on. Maybe because it was going to introduce sin into the world? Or? No, not yet. No, not yet. Um, but it's coming. Don't worry. Sin's coming soon enough. <laughs> um, if you don't have shelter, you run the risk. Come on. <laughs> I ain't supposed to be talking, but it's okay. Um, I think it's just to show Adam over time, you've experienced with these animals, you've experienced the land, you've experienced all these other things. And that's why his reaction was the same, like, oh, what did you say finally? This one at last. Because it, it's not, I've been dealing with all these other things, they're not like me, they can't create yeah. like me, they can't do these things like me and not yeah. give me this other helpmate that is like me. Good, good, thank you. That's, I think there is, the, the, this, was that a hand? Come on, just come to the mic. My spiritual imagination, I think he was meeting Adam's need because Adam was meeting his need by performing a task God asked him to do. And then when it came to Adam, Adam had a need. One was the shelter and the food. That was his physical need. But then God realized that he would need also an emotional need met to be able to communicate with someone and have someone to communicate back with him. Okay. So I think at that time, God wanted to meet his need. Ah, I like that. I like that. So. <laughs> oh. Um, yes, can you come to the mic, please? Every time you all come to the mic, people online send emails saying thank you so much for sending me to the mic because they don't want to miss out. Let's assume in God's omnipotence. When he created the animals, he created male and female. I mean, it just defies 
omnipotence that he would create a man and then have to wait for him for him to get frustrated and say, oh, let me create someone more <laughs> comparable. <laughs> wait a minute, was that a question? Why <laughs> would an omnipotent God do that? That's, yeah. well, yes, this is my question, is that why would God do that? So here, so, and you started to answer it. So there's something dramatic. There's a drama that unfolds in this creation story that we don't have in the second one. And it has to do with our needs for one another. And so when you, if you make it unfold this way, if you don't have pr appropriate shelter, you will die. If you don't have food and water, you will die. But we will make a mistake if we think that's all we need to survive. And so the experience of the narrative of him having his, his, his shelter and his food and then having to name the animals, who, as you pointed out, probably came in pairs, and he was like, what's up with that, um, come in pairs for him. The experience of being lonely alerts us to something about what it means to be human. That we were, so I, loneliness can be a gift because it makes us realize that we need others, all right? We need the companionship of others. We need a mirror, okay? A mirror, now when my Old Testament professor taught us this, he said when Adam met Eve, he immediately knew she was his kind, even though they didn't look alike. So, did Adam know what he looked like? I don't know. Had he looked in the water and seen what he looked like? Maybe so, okay? But imagine seeing someone who's like you, but isn't like you. Every encounter we have with a human being tells us what we are and what we aren't, all right? And we need that, all right? So, Human companionship, so the drama unfolds so that we learn the lesson. It's not because God didn't know, it's because we need to know. It's not enough for us to have shelter, and it's not enough for us to have food, but the part of what it means to be human is that we need to be in relationship. I'd push it a little further and say, Genesis 2 is suggesting we're not fully human until we are in relationship. And notice I'm saying relationship and not marriage, okay? Because although this text does segue into one example of marriage, remember, Adam and Eve are the only two people on the earth at this time, right? And if Adam's name, remember, Adam's name is symbolic, it's the human, And Eve's name means life. So Adam and Eve, in their relationship, don't simply represent marriage. They represent all relationships. They're all each other have. They got to be each other's best friends. They got to be this. They got to be everything to each other. No pressure. Um, but because they are the only human beings, I think they symbolize all relationships. And the reason this is important is because not everybody is going to get married, all right? And if we only talk about it in terms of marriage, we're cutting out a lot of people who need companionship. 
Some people get married and don't stay married, all right? It doesn't mean you don't need companionship. It doesn't mean you don't need really good friendships and groups of people that you spend time with and learn from. The friend who's going to look you in your face and tell you when you messed up. We need those mirrors in our lives, okay? And if you think you don't, hopefully loneliness will remind you that that is a part of what it means to be human. So, um, we so, I, that's, so we talked about a companion is someone who is opposite before and in front, a corresponding counterpart. I went the wrong way. And I want to suggest to you that we not only need companions, but we need good, worthy ones. I will make a companion comparable. Seek out good friends. Seek out worthy companions. I don't know why it is that we talk about this when we talk about our young people. We always pray that our young people have good friends because we're worried about their peer groups. We need to pray that we have good friends. We need to pray, right? I need some friends who know how to pray, right? I need some friends that will have my back. I need friends who will tell me the truth. We all need to pray for companions that are comparable to us, right? So if you think about a friend who shows you what you are and what you are not, I was thinking about the example that pa of the sermons Pastor Wesley preached when he preached about Ruth and Naomi. Ruth's relationship with Naomi enabled Naomi to see a future that she could not envision on her own. All right? And conversely, David's relationship with Nathan saved him. It protected him. Now, one of those was harder to accept than the other, but they both had a function in his life and in his well-being. And that's why you want to make sure that you don't just surround yourself with yes people. So that speaking the truth could be speaking life by encouraging, but it could also mean speaking life by rebuking us. Okay? So I said to you that Adam and Eve had these symbolic names. Ha-Adam is human. It's a play on words based on his origins. Eve's name means life. And so both of them are symbolic in that that speaks to her role in the story. So together, Adam and Eve, their names speak to where we come from and our destiny. In relationship, they can realize something larger than what they can individually, okay? So the story ends um, with the man and the woman being naked and unashamed. And um, that concept of vulnerability in the end of this story, before we get to the serpent and all the unfortunate things that happen in chapter three. This is the image of what God created us to be. To be with one another and to be fully authentic. So think about 
all of the masks that you put on. You know, you've got your job mask, your church mask, you know, your mother-in-law mask. You have a mask or a persona that you try on for the different spaces that you occupy. But God did not create us to be in relationship that way. The ideal was that we could be fully authentic with one another and be unashamed. It's only because of sin that our relationships have become so fractured and so complicated, all right? But our goal should always be to strive to get as close as we can to what God intended us to be, okay? All right, um, it's 7.49, so I'm going to stop there and see if we have any more questions before we close out tonight. Can you come to the mic? You're so good for my thoughts, but when I, my question is for myself, how did Adam knew this was flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone? Was there something physically present on him that make him knew that this was part of him. And, uh, you know, because I find the words in the Bible has so deep meaning, like the fact that he was made from the dust of the ground, not from the earth, suggests to me that the dust is really remnants of everything that's fallen all around. Everything that's on the ground is the top, like the dust, like when you drive your car, the dust on your car so that we have to eat what we are made of, like the plants, the leaves, so it suggests that to me, you know? And then um, the fact that we are human being, another weird suggestion of mine is, wait a minute, a bean, and I look at a bean, I like to eat nuts. It's really two beans stick together. It looks like one, but it's two together. And then, so I'm wondering, was Adam like a bean? Did he have something? And then God took it apart? So yeah. So yes, that's a that's a big it's a big theory yeah. some people have that what's being described in Genesis two this whatever this ha Adam is is actually somehow um, some um, uh, the word I want to use is an old word and I'm sure there's a better word but some kind of a hermaphrodite a, cr a creature that was both male and female that God then separates. That's what some people imagine that this means. Other people follow the more literal reading that it was a single human being and then a part taken out of that human being to create the other one. Um, I, I don't really spend much time there because um, um, I wasn't there and I, you know, so all we can do is imagine or wonder. What I do know is that the point of the story is to tell us our need for one another. But that's a great question. That's a great question. I just can't answer it with any certainty. Hi. Um, so on one of the days, God created light, and on another day, he created the sun. What's what did the, God create on the first day? Yes, what's the difference? <laughs> a whole lot of different theories on what that was. Um, so there's some really... Um, 
Some people say that when God created light, that essentially what God was establishing was time, day and night. Because then when you get to day four, it says the greater light and the lesser light to rule the day and to rule the night. So that for some people, that light speaks kind of in a, in a symbolic way to the creation of time with day and night. There are other theories ranging from that to it was some kind of supernatural work light that God created just to get the job done until day four. I mean, again, so the problem, the problem with, the problem is that sometimes when scripture uses poetry, that we will not get some of the specific answers that we want. That's why I love poetry with a purpose. The purpose of the poetry is to explain to you that God is the creator of time and space. Genesis 1 is temporal, Genesis 2 is spatial. God in Genesis 1 is cosmic, God in Genesis 2 is relational and intimate. And I'm going to tell you, you don't want to pick one. You want both of them, right? I tell people all the time, I need a God who has a plan, and I need a God who's flexible, right? Because I'm going to start out on the plan on Monday, but somewhere by Wednesday, I'm going to need God to adjust the plan, right? So we want to kind of hold it in that creative tension, even though we may not get all the specific answers we want. Okay? All right. I think we're out of time. So let's get ready to pray. Those were good questions tonight. Thank you. Next week is praying with the pastor. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to study. Every time we open your word, we find something new. We thank you, God, that this word speaks life and light to us. I pray, God, that only that which is of you will stand and anything that is not of you will blow away like the chaff. And we ask, Lord, now that you would be with everyone here and with families represented. We pray tonight specifically, Lord, for those who are grieving and for the people of the Bahamas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.